You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their disbelief. And he went among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have been with your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and a leading man of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you upon up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me once 
at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because for his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Resistance is the context where Christian mission advances. And therefore, rejection is what the Bible tells us that we should anticipate when we follow Jesus. Rejection, perhaps in the workplace. Rejection in the community. And even as we see in this passage, rejection even in our own homes. What do three stories about dust, doubt, and decapitation have in common? The answer is that they all, in some way or another, are tied together by the theme of faithfulness in the face of rejection. Rejection present in all three stories here. Now, before we dive into this passage, what I want to do is I want to consider the subject of rejection itself, just rejection in general. History tells us that when Socrates was tried and found guilty of crimes against the state, essentially he didn't believe in the gods that the state believed in and they therefore uh, believed that he was corrupting the minds of the youth by his philosophy, they essentially gave him a choice. He could choose exile and banishment or death. And the interesting thing is that Socrates chose to drink the hemlock, the poison, For him, banishment was worse than death. And I think this is a really interesting illustration for us, that that some would rather die or even forfeit portions of their life rather than face serious rejection. Why? Because I think we can all agree rejection hurts. And rejection is often very costly. Rejection is painful. In fact, the University of Michigan conducted a study where they took participants and they placed them in an MRI machine. And while they were in the MRI machine, they asked them to recall one of their most vivid memories of experiencing serious rejection. And what they found as they studied the brain in these certain circumstances was that the brain was activated in the very same places and in very similar ways as when someone experiences physical pain. It was almost an identical reaction. There's no arguing it. Rejection is painful. It hurts. It is something that we all, in some way or another, fear. And rejection is something that we all, in some way or another, try to avoid. But the question is why? Why is rejection so powerful? Why does rejection hurt so much? I believe it's because it touches one of the most sensitive places in our hearts. See, below the fear of rejection is actually the very human need for approval. It's not simply that we're afraid of rejection, but deep down, we all have this craving to be approved. We all have this craving to be accepted. And this craving itself for approval isn't in and of itself a bad thing. In fact, it is God created. It's there from God. But because of our sinful nature, which is present in every man and woman ever since the fall in the garden, 
Now, with our craving that was designed to be satisfied in God, we are now tempted to feed that craving with the approval of people. We take an insatiable appetite to be approved, to be accepted, that can only be satisfied in the presence of God, and we take and we try to work that out and sort that out on the horizontal plane. John 12 sums up this condition that we all have like this. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is a pretty apt description of what you and I are wrestling with when we fear rejection. Simply put, we care more about what people say than what God says about us. This is where things go bad. And this creates significant problems for us. Because when we open ourselves up to soar on the heights of praise, by doing so, we are also opening our souls to be devastated by their disapproval. It's been said like this before, when we live for the approval of others, we die from their rejection. If you are living for people's acceptance, you're going to die a little bit inside every time that you're rejected. As we attach our sense of worth, for instance, to the fickle praise of people, which is here today and gone tomorrow. People can be your greatest fan today and then they just move on like that. And what we do is we attach our sense of worth to that fickle praise and what it causes is, is, is it causes us to live in this constant state of insecurity and, and, and woundedness, which means that we've constantly got to be feeding our insecurities. <clears throat> now, it's no surprise that we live in a hyper-connected world. We live in a hyper-connected world, which means that our potential for praise has increased exponentially. In fact, the logic is the more online presence you have, the more opportunity you have for acclaim. Neuroscientists have been talking about for years, decades almost, uh, about the, the effects of technology and things like smartphones on brain activity. And one thing that they've discovered is that the brain actually releases uh, in interesting amounts of dopamines, which is essentially the chemical that your brain uses to uh, reward and motivate particular behaviors but your brain releases dopamines in response to things like likes, comments, text messages. So depending on your online presence, we're getting this little surge, of like a drug-like surge of dopamine on a daily basis. No wonder why so many people are addicted to their smartphones. No wonder why so many people are addicted to technology. Why? Because we get our buzz, we get our high. It satisfies something. But our potential for rejection is also exponential. So think about a couple scenarios. You send your job resume out to a number of places, say 100 different places, and you don't get the kind of response that you wanted. You're not being turned down for one job. You're being turned down from 100 jobs. 100 companies say, no, we don't really want you. Or how about this? You, you post that warm and heartfelt message about your kid's most recent uh, activity. And you don't get the kind of response that you want. And you start to think through what? You, you got a problem? You got a problem with kids or something? <laughs> you have a problem with my kids? Do you, are, are my kids not as good? As, what, what's the problem here? 
Or we post the picture that didn't get the kind of likes that we wanted. And so we, we begin to ask why. We look in the mirror. Am I not pretty enough? Am I not handsome enough? Or do I not look like this? Do I not meet this standard? Am, am I not rich enough? What do I need to change about myself? And then it pushes us next into that sort of dark place where we go to investigate. Well, wait a minute. So-and-so was online at the same time I posted this. And they're liking so-and-so's post. And they're not liking my post. So what is, is there something wrong? Did he like this person more? Did that person say something bad about me? And it's just a dark rabbit hole of insecurity. We never do that, of course. Which ends up leading to us making significant compromises to who we are, how we act, what we say, even what we believe, in order to stay in good favor and to feed that craving for acceptance which means that we will live our lives aimlessly running here and there and never really getting anywhere. What I found in my own life is that forward progress is nearly impossible when I'm walking around trying to make sure everyone is happy with me. It's one thing to put the needs of other people first. It's an entirely different thing to live in the constant fear to make sure that everyone is happy with me, that everyone likes me, that everyone approves of what I'm doing. What this can even lead to is that we forfeit our souls. What does it profit a man if he gains the entire world and forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man or a woman if they gain the praise and the recognition of the world, but they forfeit their soul? See, old King Herod becomes a sort of cautionary tale for us this morning of, of what it means to, to try to remain in people's approval and what it can ultimately lead to. Herod is in the place to do the right thing. And yet out of fear of what his guests might think, he caves. What ultimately costs John the Baptist his head? It's fear of what his guests might think. He saves face and forfeits his soul. But what I want us to consider this morning is this. What if we could be freed from the fear of rejection? What if we could be freed from the fear and the need to, to constantly be compromising? Free from the need to keep up with that exhausting pace of living for other people's approval. But not only that, what if we could live not only free from the fear of rejection, but with the, the courage and the boldness that would willingly face rejection for the sake of Jesus Christ. That would not only run from it, but step into it for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is the vision of Jesus. And this is the vision that's laid out for us here in Mark chapter 6. So what I want to do this morning, uh, what I want to do is I want to ask this question. How can we overcome fear, the fear of rejection, and live faithful in the midst of it? Truth is, we're going to face rejection. That's not debatable. But how do we live faithful in it? And the first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. We need to remember that Jesus himself was rejected. Remember that Jesus was rejected. Now, Mark tells us about Jesus' hometown welcome. It's not the kind of hometown welcome that you would expect. We would expect for Jesus, they would, they would roll out the red carpets. This is their boy. This is their guy. This is, the, you know, a small town. He's coming from it. So they would, they would welcome him with open arms. But what Mark tells us is that he's actually faced with hostility. 
In fact, the resistance to Jesus is so strong and the doubt is so thick that Mark records this in verses five and six. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marvels at this sort of resistance and unbelief. Now, we could read this as if Jesus walks into his hometown and he's incapable of healing. That's not the point here. The point is that there's just an an extreme amount of unbelief and resistance. God uses faith as the avenue through which he brings healing. By your faith, you've been healed. And yet he comes to Nazareth and what he discovers is that this, this town has a corporate unbelief. They're not believing. Their unbelief is so resistant and so defensive that only a few people are healed. But the question is, why does he experience this sort of reception? Why does he experience this sort of rejection? And the question for us as followers of Jesus is, why will we face it as well? And it comes down really to the scandal of the ministry of Jesus. Look with me at the very end of verse 3. It says this, And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. The word that that Mark originally used for offense here is where we get the English word scandalized. Why are they so bothered? Why Why this sort of reception in his own hometown? It's the scandal of Jesus. It's the appearance of the kingdom and the message of the kingdom that is so scandalous. First, the appearance of the kingdom is scandalous because it's It's humble. This is not the Messiah that the people are expecting. As Jesus comes into the synagogue and he's opening up the scriptures, and he's talking about how he fulfills these scriptures, and he's teaching with authority, this is not the Messiah that they had expected. And it's, Mark tells us that the people begin to be amazed, and they begin to question, like, who is this? Where did he come up with all this stuff? I love this question. Isn't that the carpenter? He's like, hey, Mark, isn't that the guy that like fixed your roof last year? He's like, yeah. He's like, I'll give that guy a a four-star review on Yelp, but I don't know if I'm going to bow down and worship him. Isn't that the carpenter? Or how about this one? Isn't that the son of Mary? Now, we we may not, that that may not strike us as anything, but typically in this time and in this age, it would have been, isn't that the Mary of, or isn't that the son of Joseph or the son of fill in the blank of the father's name? This can mean two things. One, it could mean that by this time Joseph has died and this, you know, Mary is the, the last remaining parent. But more, more than likely what they're doing is that they're, they're sort of poking at the sort of scandalous arrival of Jesus Christ that came through a teenage virgin birth. The, the appearance of the kingdom is scandalous because it's humbling, but also the message of the kingdom is scandalous because it's humbling. The message of the kingdom humbles us. It, it, the message of Christ speaks to our sin. And our brokenness and our, and our need for rescue and our need to repent. As Jesus sends them out, it says in verse 13, so they went and proclaimed that people should repent. Doesn't that sound like a dirty word? Repent. I don't know about you, but from what I've discovered is that people do not want to be told that they need to repent. People do not want to be told that they are condemned in their sin that they're helplessly lost apart from the intervention and grace of Jesus Christ. People are like, okay, I'm doing just fine. Like, get that out of here. What are you talking about? There's resistance to that. It's humbling. 
And if we're to be honest, our own hearts were at one time resistant too. Did anyone here, when they first heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're like, I am so, you're right. No, there's initial resistance that the grace of God overcomes by the spirit of God. We fight, we fight, we fight. Then the God, and then the grace of God breaks through and opens us up to this message that is so strange. It also speaks to the unmerited kindness of God that rescues us despite our worst or our best. Think about how offensive this is to the person that has tried their entire life to please God and to do all the right things and keep their nose clean and cross their T's and dot their I's so that God would finally approve of them. They've been doing all, all their behavior has been in line. Everything they've been doing has been done in order for God to approve them and to accept them. And what they come to find out is that the core of the Christian message is that we're accepted by faith. Despite ourselves, despite our worst, despite our best. That's offensive. Essentially, everything that that person has been working for their entire lives comes crumbling down. They discover that it was wood, hay, and stubble. And it doesn't remain. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Titus 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is great news for the unrighteous. That is great news for sinners. That is bad news for the self-righteous. That's the, oh, whoops, <laughs> moment for the self-righteous. So he faces resistance. In fact, it says in verse four, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus faced rejection. Settle that. Jesus faced rejection. Is that a sign that he has failed? No. Jesus faces rejection in his own hometown, and what it does here in Mark 6 is it costs him his honor at home. But as we read on in the Gospel of Mark, what we come to discover later on in Mark is that ultimately it cost him his life. Here, it was his family. Later, it was the Jewish community that cries out, crucify him. It was the Roman officials that carry out that execution. It's his own disciples, his own boys that say, we don't even know the guy. It's you and I that resist him and fight him and run from his pursuing and don't give him the honor that he is due. And if that wasn't enough, at the cross, Mark 15 records, Jesus would cry out this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rejection, 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 rejection. And then the final blow on the cross, the father turns his face away. You are not alone in your experience of rejection. You are not the only one that knows the sting of rejection. Being the wise and the gracious king that Jesus is, Jesus actually turns rejection into that which brings us life. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. And Jesus faces rejection head on, listen, 
so that you and I can too. Jesus faced that rejection without a fight so that we could step into it as well. The very thing that we have determined is the sentence of death. Jesus is repurposed into being the means of life and blessing. Remember, Jesus was rejected too. The second thing is this. You guys still with me? All right. You're quiet today, but I'll take that as you're paying attention. The second thing is this. Know whose you are and who you are. Know whose you are and who you are. It's very easy to fall into the trap of being defensive. We are a defensive people. It's very easy to fall in the trap of being desperate for people's approval. It's very easy to fall into the trap of being fearful of what people are saying about us and what people are thinking about us, all of our, all of our conspiracies about what people think about us. One of the quickest ways for believers to fall into this trap is by forgetting or ignoring whose we are and who we are. And I believe really at the core of this fear is insecurity about our identity. Identity is so important in the formation of the life of a believer. Whose we are and who we are. And so Jesus gathers his disciples and he speaks to this issue of identity. Identity and authority, which we'll get to, but identity. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Some of your translations read, and he called the 12 to himself. And so I find this interesting. In the midst of being driven out of Nazareth, they've just been kicked out of town, Jesus draws them in. From one rejection to an acceptance, to being brought in. And Mark records that he graciously chooses his 12 and he calls them to himself and then he calls them out into mission. This is key for us, that we have been chosen and called and drawn to Christ. Believer, we are God's chosen ones. The scriptures describe us as holy and beloved, that our identity is one of being accepted, that we are approved, we are welcomed, we are secured. Through Christ, we are declared righteous. That is who we are. That is our identity. That is fixed in heaven through the finished work of Jesus Christ. See, we're going to face rejection in the world. But for the child of God, we will never face rejection where it matters most. We're going to face rejection in our lives. But where it matters most, for the child of God, we will never face rejection. And what this does is it feeds our need for approval and gives us the confidence to face our fears. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? I like to add a little bit of tone to Paul because I think he was a little bit fiery and feisty. So he's like, what? All right, step up, listen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for me. Who's going to stand against me? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What are you going to say about me? God has already said everything about me that I could ever want in Jesus Christ. He has spoken his final word over me. What? 
Like what? Bring it. Bring your best. Seriously. You got a critique about me? You don't don't even know the half of it. I'm worse than you could ever imagine. Seriously. But what? I'm a child of God. He was condemned. Your words of condemnation mean nothing. Christ was condemned in my place. It's the power of the gospel. It gives us boldness. It gives us bravery. Why? Because our approval is already fixed. It's not shaky. So that means we no longer need to be desperately searching for validation and purpose. We've got to end that endeavor. If you're a believer, you don't need to search for that anymore. We, we need to end that endeavor. I shouldn't need you to tell me who I am. I shouldn't need you to tell me what I'm worth. I shouldn't need you to tell me how important I am. We shouldn't require affirmation in order to feel loved and significant and improved. Why? Because the life of the disciple is already filled with infinite purpose and meaning. Purpose and meaning that cannot be stripped away by the worst the world can offer and cannot be added to based on the best the world can offer. I'll say it again. It's fixed in heaven. Steady and sure. And so like these first 12, Jesus calls us to himself and then sends us out with authority to bring words of deliverance, to send us out to bring hands of healing, to send us out into the world with lives of blessing, to offer healing and deliverance and blessing to a broken and a hurting world. God, think about this with me. God is bringing about ultimate renewal in this world through his church. We're not plan B. We're not this like little side piece over here that he leverages once in a while. He's bringing renewal through his people. And so the question for us that we need to settle today is how much more significance could we ask for? God is unfolding his eternal purposes through us. Know who you are and who you are. Number three, super spiritual, keep going. Refuse to give up. This is what rejection can do. It causes us to give up. We give in to the rejection. You're right. I'm not worth it. You're right. It's not worth it. We face a little bit of resistance and we're like, "Eh, I'm going to go a different direction. We seek the path of least resistance. But Jesus calls us to not give up. We're called to persevere. One of the most spiritual, holy things that you may do this year is keep going. We set these lofty goals, you know, like at the beginning of the year, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to do all these number of things. Let's set a biblical goal. Persevere. Just keep going. This is one of the doctrines of grace, the perseverance of the saints. That God's holy, powerful grace is at work within us to simply keep going. Keep going, friend. After Jesus is rejected in his own hometown, Mark records this, verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus redirects his mission and he keeps moving. This is key. He just, he's like, all right, <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Which shows us that rejection 
from people can serve as redirection from God. What is the result of Jesus being rejected in Nazareth? He doesn't go lick his wounds. He advances. He moves into other villages. He goes into other towns. He commissions the twelve. The, the, gospel, the, kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the message goes out now exponentially. He says, go and preach. There's a little uh, portion of the journal of John Wesley that I've, I've had stored in my computer for years. I, I, I come to it every once in a while just when I need encouragement. It's John Wesley writing about these consecutive Sundays that occurred in May and June. Interestingly, they correspond with our dates right now, but it says this. Sunday morning, May 5th, preach in St. Anne's was asked not to come back anymore. <laughs> Sunday evening, May 5th, preached at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday evening, May 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out again. Sunday morning, May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's, you can't remember. Deacons called special meeting and said, I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. <laughs> Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in a meadow, chased out of meadow as a bull was turned loose in the service. Whenever I feel like I've got it bad, I just remember that. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Listen to this. Sunday evening, June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in pasture. 10,000 people came to hear me. Rejection, 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 breakthrough. How early in that list would we have given up? Keep going. A closed door here simply means that God is opening a door somewhere else. There's going to be a place that rejects you, and then there's going to be a place that receives you. As Jesus commissions his disciples, he tells them, this is the sort of thing that you need to get used to. You're going to be rejected, and then you're going to be received. You need to get used to rejection. If they rejected me, they're going to reject you. Rejection is not a sign of failure. In fact, I could argue that rejection is a sign of success because it means you're moving in the direction of Jesus Christ. In fact, he equips them with some symbolic gestures here, a symbolic gesture in order to respond to rejection. I love this. Verse 11, he says this, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, a little bit of history. There was a practice among pious Jewish men that if they traveled into foreign lands, that before they came back into the Holy Land, they would brush the, the polluted dust of, you know, these other places before they came back into the Holy Promised Land. And so Jesus sort of repurposes this practice. And he says, this is going to serve as a warning that this one is on you. Shaking off the dust means I don't bear the responsibility of your rejection. I have fulfilled my mission. That's not mine to carry. I don't carry the weight of your response. Your response is not my responsibility. How many of us are walking around thinking that people's response is our responsibility? And we're being crushed under the weight of that. 
I don't know how else to say this. Some of y'all need to shake off the dust today. We need to use wisdom, but we need to shake off that dust. Why? Because the mission of God that God has called us to is urgent. You've got people to reach. You've got people to pray for. You've got people to bless. There's an urgency to this mission. That's why he says you guys need to, you need to pack light. You need to tread lightly. Why? Because there's urgency with this message. Don't settle in. Keep moving. You got people to bless. This is the, this is the imagery behind the, the, the anointing of oil that we're bestowing blessing upon other people. There are people that need to be blessed. But we're going to have a very hard time being a blessing to others when we're being consumed by certain hostile relationships. So Jesus is giving us freedom. Be free. Be free. They're in God's hands. You're not their savior. You do not bear the responsibility of their response. Shake off the dust. Keep going. God's got stuff in store for you. Amen? Okay, one last thing. Stare rejection in the face and see beyond it. Now, the story of John is sort of a roller coaster, but it goes something like this. Herod likes John. He's perplexed by him. He's not necessarily willing to, like, obey the message, but he likes what he has to say. But Herodias, his wife, despises him because John has officially called them on their stuff. He's called them out. The fact that Herodias, who was Philip's wife, is now married to Herod. He says it's wrong. And so John the Baptist finds himself in prison to be shut up. And so one night, Herodias' daughter performs a seductive dance, what makes it kind of even darker than it already is, is it's believed that she's probably a young teenager. And so she's got these, <clears throat> these nobles and Herod that are half drunk, and she's got them eating out of her hands. And because of this dance, Herod, essentially in his arrogance, gathers his nobles and says, watch this, watch this. Ask whatever you want up to half the kingdom, and it's yours. Proving her age, that she's probably very young, she goes to her mother Herodias and asks, what should I ask for? And Herodias sees her opportunity, I want John's head in a platter. And she comes back and she asks, but there's this moment where Herod, I have to imagine, just sobers up in a very quick moment. He's torn. Because he knows it's not right, but it says because of his oath and because of his guests, he obliges. Verse 27 and 29 and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. When he went and beheaded him in a prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it into the tomb. I don't know about you, but this is not very motivating for me. This is not a motivating conclusion, not at least on the surface. All right, Jesus, I'm willing to, to face rejection. I'm willing to, to step into rejection for your sake. What's it going to mean? It's going to mean losing your head. But here's the key. While this is the conclusion of our reading this morning, this is not the conclusion. Because we need to remember as we're winding down our time in the Easter tide, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the grave does not have the last word. The tomb does not have the last word. For the believer, something greater and more glorious lies beyond death. 
And, and this seems to be the point about John's disciples placing him in the tomb. Mark is, is invoking resurrection imagery here. That they're sowing his body in faith with the hope that he will be raised. The question I have as I'm reading this is, why don't we read about John resisting death? Why doesn't he go down with a fight? Why don't John's disciples come and like break him out and that sort of thing? Why doesn't he wrestle his way out of this one? In fact, all we hear is John's initial reason that he went into prison, but we don't hear a word from John at this point forward, not a mumbling word. Because this is the point, Mark is highlighting that John looked rejection in the face and he saw beyond it. John yielded to death in the hope of the life that awaited him. He had hope that the moment that he lost his head, he would gain his reward. He considered himself blessed. Think about these words of Jesus in Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and then when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven. He stares, he stares death in the face and he sees beyond it. There's a famous story about John Chrysostom uh, in the 5th century He's brought before the Empress Eudoxia and he's being condemned and he's being persecuted for the, the Christian faith. And at first she threatens him with banishment in which he replies like this. He says, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house, said John. But I'll kill you, the Empress said. No, you cannot for my life is hid with Christ and God. I'll take away your treasures, said Eudoxia. No, you cannot for my treasures in heaven, my heart is there too. But I'll drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. Eudoxia responded, No, you cannot, said John. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. This is the key. And I think this is really the key of everything that I've been trying to say here. This is the paradox of the kingdom. Nothing can be done to harm the one who dies. Nothing can be done to truly harm the one that faces rejection. So how do we overcome our fear of rejection? It's by assurance of what is ours in Christ Jesus. Think about this logically. What can, what can someone take away from someone who has their everything hidden in Christ? When Christ is our acceptance, we do not need to fear rejection. When Jesus is our treasure, we don't need to fear loss. When Jesus is our companion, we don't need to fear the end of particular relationships. When Jesus is our life, we don't even need to fear death. We too can stare rejection in the face and join with both of these Johns and say, I defy you. There's nothing that you can do to harm me. Amen?